I'm Kat. And I'm Taylor. And welcome to this week's episode of Square Mile of Murder. Now, this week we've got a multi-part crime that was the center of media attention in the mid-1970s. Uh, this story has it all. American royalty, kidnapping, political radical groups, bank robbery, possible brainwashing, and so much more. That's right, today we're diving deep into the Patty Hearst story. Get ready, kids, this one gets weird. And uh, this episode is also a special request going out to my dear sainted mother for her birthday, uh, which was May 4th, or is May 4th, because we're recording this in advance, but if you're listening to it, it was May 4th. Um, so <laughs> Please stop, I'm confused already. <laughs> <laughs> so, happy birthday, Mom. Um, here's your Patty Hearst fix. Yeah, happy birthday, JR. So, if you're familiar with the story of Patty Hearst, which I am not, <laughs> you probably remember the story with the following series of events. Patricia Hearst, granddaughter of media mogul William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped by the Symbionese. Sim- How on earth do you say that? Symbionese. Symbionese. Yep. By the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974, which we will refer to as the SLA. Yeah. For ease. The SLA then forced her to participate in a bank robbery at the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. She was eventually found, arrested, tried and found guilty of bank robbery and using a firearm during the commission of a felony. You probably know that the SLA was a brutal group that used brainwashing to coerce Hearst to commit a crime with them. And you might know that Hearst's sentence was then commuted by then-president Jimmy Carter. So, if that's your recollection of the Patty Hearst kidnapping, you're not alone. Um, author Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote the book American Heiress, The Wild Saga and Kidnapping, The Wild Saga of the Kidnapping Crimes and Trial of Patty Hearst, whose book uh, we used heavily for the research of this episode, um, Tubin has said that the Hearst family and Patty herself managed to change public perception of the story. And uh, she managed to change it to a story of one young woman who was kidnapped and forced to commit one bank robbery, and that's it. But as we'll find out, there is much, much more to the story. I'm quite excited for this one. Yeah. Partly because I didn't write it, so I've got no idea what happened. <laughs> But also the fact that you want to write more means that I've got to now learn to edit because otherwise I'm not really bringing anything to this whole <laughs> thing. I just <laughs> like there are certain ones that I just want to write because I want to spend time reading about them mostly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, if you want to edit, feel free. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it with a little bit of background first. You can't talk about Patty Hearst without talking about America in the 1970s. If you think of the 1960s as a decade of free love, the 70s could be considered the decade of discontent, upheaval, revolt, and violence. Fun. With more and more people. <laughs> Very fun. I mean, that's pretty much what this next decade's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Yeah. With more and more people angry and disillusioned with the Vietnam War, traditional values and the slow pace of change turn to violence 
in, the, in an attempt to get their message across. The era saw the rise of groups like the Black Liberation Army, an offshoot of the Black Panther movement, that advocated, quote, taking up arms for the liberation and self-determination of black people in the United States. The Black Liberation Army carried out bombings, murdered police officers, robbed banks and staged prison breaks. Another well-known radical group of the time was the Weather Underground Organisation, commonly known, commonly called Weather Underground or the Weathermen, who wanted to create a revolutionary party to overthrow, quote, American imperialism. The group was classified by the FBI as a domestic terrorist group for the hand they had in a series of bombings carried out on high-profile targets, such as the US Capitol building, the Pentagon, and NYPD precincts. To run through some of the numbers, in 1972, there were 1,962 actual and attempted bombings in the United States. 25 people were killed. In 1973... 1,955 bombings with 22 people killed. And in 1974, 2,044 bombings with 24 people killed. That's so many bombings. <laughs> That's just so many. Like, I feel like everyone was just in their basement making bombs in the 70s. But yeah, basically everyone was fed up and they weren't going to take it anymore. They said they wanted a revolution, and they carried it out with pipe bombs and modified automatic weapons. Um, it, and it's in this environment that the Symbionese Liberation Army was formed. Now, in terms of scale, the SLA was a pretty small army with only a handful of members. Um, and the main members um, in the beginning were Donald DeFries, Willie Wolf. Bill and Emily Harris, Angela Atwood, Nancy Ling Perry, Patricia Ms. Moon Soltizic. It's actually the name wow. she went by. <laughs> uh, Camilla Hall, Russell Little, and Joe Ramiro. So uh, Donald DeFries was an escaped prisoner who had been a member of the Black Cultural Association during his time at Vacaville Prison. Um, the group was a partnership between the prison and UC Berkeley that allowed students and interested individuals to visit inmates and help them with education and political discussions. And during his time with the BCA, DeFries met Willie Wolf, who was an anthropology student at Berkeley. Um, and ultimately, Wolf kind of helped bring together all the disparate elements of the future SLA. I do like that name, Willie Wolf. Yeah, that's a good that one. That is. Good. Um, so you might not know, but what does Symbionese mean? We'll get to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically, it's a bunch okay. of bullshit. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so DeFries was transferred from Vacaville Prison to Soledad State Prison and then escaped on March 5th. 1973, while on work duty outside the prison fence. He met up with Willie Wolf and others he'd met in the BCA and ended up hiding out with Wolf's friend Patricia Ms. Moon Soltizic. Soltizic. DeFries and Ms. Moon quickly began sleeping together, as all radicals. (laughs) Yeah, 
just all radicals and fugitives I want to do. The two then began to outline the future SLA's founding principles and stances. In the group's manifesto called Symbionese Liberation Army Declaration of Revolutionary War and the Symbionese Program. <laughs> Try saying that quick. <laughs> DeFries detailed the origin of the group's name. Ah. The name Symbion- Symbionese is taken from the word symbiosis and we define its meaning as a body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony and partnership in the interest of all within the body. Yeah. So. Okay. (laughs) uh, If that sounds like a lot of radical gobbledygook, uh, it pretty much was, um, as were most of the SLA's writings and communications with the media. But uh, we'll get more into that a little bit later. But basically, the SLA wanted all races, genders, and ages to fight together in a united front against conservative forces. So I can get on that. Yeah. But also, in, in, in the grand scheme of, like, radical stances, pretty... That's like your standard. baseline radical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's very mundane. It is. Radicals. It's like, we just want everyone to get along. Um, and yeah, so the group also adopted a, uh, the symbol of a seven-headed cobra, which defries based on the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Now, this association might make you think that the SLA was another offshoot of the Black Power Movement, but in actuality, DeFries was the only black member of the group. And everyone else was basically middle-class, college-educated white kids who were bored with their uh, privileged lives. One of those. Yes. And so as DeFries and Ms. Moon started to gather more friends and members for their group, DeFries took the name Sin Q as his nom de guerre, um, and all the rest of the members of the group uh, also took um, aliases. However, I think I've forgotten to put them in the script. So <laughs> that whole paragraph so will might, remain a mystery. <laughs> might get edited out. <laughs> <laughs> On November 6, 1973, the SLA brought their radical ideology off the page and into the world. The SLA shot and killed Oakland School Superintendent Marcus Foster and wounded his deputy, Robert Blackburn. Foster was the first black superintendent in Oakland and the SLA SLA viewed him as a fascist. They thought he supported a plan to introduce identification cards and a police presence into Oakland schools, so they killed him. Um, Question, Hmm. as someone not from the USA, what is a school superintendent? Um, now I'm not super duper up on all of my local government, but basically, um, I think it's an elected position where for an entire school district, um, the superintendent oversees all the public schools in the area and basically, um, yeah, sets out the policies and 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 all that sort of stuff. So I think I think that's right. I don't I don't really know. Okay. 
Um, but in fact, Foster was opposed to the increased security measures and had a long history of progressive and effective education reform that worked against racial discrimination in Philadelphia public school system. Yeah, so these guys were wrong. Um, so Just a bit. Yeah. So the SLA shot Foster eight times with hollow point bullets that were packed with cyanide. Ooh. Yeah. Just to really... That is... Just yeah. to really make sure he's dead. Yeah. Really fucked up. Yeah. Um, Eight bullets don't do the trick. The cyanide's going to do it. Yeah. Uh. Apparently, the, um, like, medical examiner um, was, like, picked up one of the bullets, and just by holding it in his hand, he could smell the cyanide. Like, just in the air, which is... Not good. No. So. Packed. Packed with cyanide. Lovely. Um, Joe Romero and Russell Little were arrested on January 10th, 1974 and charged with Foster's murder. Uh, they were both convicted and sentenced to life in prison, though Little's conviction was later overturned on appeal. Um, and Little has said, quote, who actually pulled the trigger that killed Foster was Ms. Moon. Nancy Ling Perry was supposed to shoot Blackburn. She kind of botched that, and DeFreeze ended up shooting him with a shotgun. Uh, and indeed, Ms. Moon shot Marcus Foster repeatedly with a revolver, ultimately killing him with a shot to the back of the neck. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the next day, the group sent their first quote, communique, which is what they labeled all of their messages to the media. Um, they sent this to... Uh. <laughs> uh-huh. They're, they're extra. <laughs> I'm noticing. <laughs> um, <laughs> that they sent their communique to Berkeley radio station KPFA, uh, and in it they took credit for Foster's murder. And the document ended with the flowery and intense statement, quote, and this is written in all caps, so just imagine it in all caps. I'm not going to yell, but like, imagine. Hang on, I can take my earphones off. You can yell. <laughs> Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. You didn't yell that. I spoke loudly. But yeah, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. Oh, God. Um, Foster's murder and Ramiro and Little's arrest arrests led directly into the SLA's next, quote, planned action. They decided they needed to kidnap an important figure to negotiate the release of their prison imprisoned members. But first, they needed to find someone important. Which leads us right to Patty Hearst. Aha. Patricia Campbell Hearst was born February 20th, 1954 to Randolph Apperson Hearst and Catherine Wood Campbell. She was a third of five daughters. Randolph, also known as Randy Hearst, was the youngest son of American publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst. 
who was basically the founder of sensational journalism and eventually used his media empire to promote his conservative political stances. He also constructed Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California, which is now a National Historic Landmark. Mm, cool. Yeah. Uh, but was basically an extremely fancy, opulent private residence stuffed with priceless works of art. And if you've ever seen Citizen Kane, yeah, that film is based on William Randolph Hearst's life and career. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so think of the names Gates, Zuckerberg, Bezos. That's how big the Hearst name would have been in the 1970s. And his son, Randy, never gained full control of his father's media empire, but instead was given the largely figurehead position as publisher of the Hearst Corporation's crown jewel, the San Francisco Examiner. But Randy was more interested in going duck hunting and taking afternoons off than he was in the day-to-day operations of the paper. Though he came from a very wealthy family, Randy was known to treat everyone around him, reporters, servants, etc., with kindness and respect. Was it what? Want me to give him a cookie? <laughs> well, I, he was—he he had a reputation of being just a nice guy. Hmm. He was also passionate about charity and was involved with many charitable organizations. Yeah, I I mean, that cool, that's great. Give to charity, everything. But when people are like, oh, despite being rich, they were still nice and treat people with kindness and respect. And oh, I know it's like, shouldn't that be <laughs> That is like just the how you do it. Basic standard for being a decent human being. Yeah. You know, it's not hard to just be a decent human being. It's a very, very low barrier. You couldn't limbo under it. (laughs) But so many people try. Yeah. Uh, Which leads us, actually fittingly, to Catherine, Patty Hearst's mother. Catherine uh, was a staunchly conservative product of the Catholic South. Uh, she grew up in a wealthy family and lived the life of a debutante. She was a longtime friend and supporter of Governor and then President Ronald Reagan. Um, and starting in 1956, she served as a regent for the University of California for 20 years, including throughout the radical 60s um, when the university's regents constantly clashed with liberal students. What is a university regent? I think there, I, I literally tried to look this up for like half an hour the other day. <laughs> so from what I can gather, they're like the board of directors for the university. So, and like for University of California, all of the UC universities. Um, and they, so like they struggled with students over like, issues of free speech and protests and like um, uh, controversial speakers on campus. Um, And uh, I believe that Catherine Hurst had a big hand in getting um, 
Angela Davis removed from the teaching faculty at Berkeley. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of what was going on there. <laughs> yeah. Shake my head. Yeah. So Randy was uh, a nice guy. Catherine. Well, they say opposite attracts. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine was kind of a bitch. <laughs> um, and uh, Patricia grew up chafing against her mother's conservative politics and worldview and definitely, oh, uh, what? No. And desperately wanted to break out of the debutante Catholic school life that Catherine was laying out for her. Uh, but she enjoyed spending time with her father, who took her duck hunting and taught her to shoot. Put a little asterisk on that. It's going to be important. Um, cool. <laughs> and while attending school uh, at Crystal Springs, which I believe is a, a boarding school in Northern California, um, she started a relationship with one of her young teachers, Stephen Weed. Yeah. So. Great. Um, now, Weed was in his early 20s, and their relationship supposedly began when Patty was 16, but the math probably works out closer to 15, which isn't great. Um, now, so they started this relationship. Um, Catherine desperately wanted Patty to break up with Steve, and instead... Patty moved in with him. Obviously. I mean, that is like the ultimate teenage rebellion. Your parents want you to break up with someone and you move in with them instead. Yeah, so. just doubles down there. Yeah. By the time Patty was 19, they were living together in Berkeley, California, and surviving off of weeds. $650 a month teaching stipend and Patty's $300 a month allowance from her family. What would that be worth now? Don't actually know. Let's see. <laughs> I just started to type in todaysmoney.com which I don't think is a thing. <laughs> so $650 is... $3,403, which makes $300, uh, $1,570. So uh, that's knocking on five grand a month. Yeah. Which no, I don't know. I'm very sleepy. Yeah, it's just about. So, mm. like, if you think about how much an apartment in Berkeley would cost now, that's probably about what you need to pay the rent, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it compared to her upbringing, it was not much money to be subsisting on. Okay. Uh, Patty started to resent her life with Steve and longed for something more exciting. But they got engaged anyway, and an announcement about their impending nuptials appeared in the San Francisco Examiner and the competing San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah, big, big Ooh. news. So, remember when the SLA was looking for important people to kidnap? Well, <laughs> they... think they found one. They read that engagement announcement. Um, and on the night of February 4th, 1974, there was a knock at Patty and Steve's door. 
Um, when they opened the door, there was a disheveled looking woman who said, quote, I'm sorry, but I think I backed into your car. I'm sorry. Can I come in and use your phone? Uh, Patty turned away, annoyed that the woman had damaged her car and walked towards the living room. And then there was a loud crash. Three people with weapons burst into the apartment. The woman was Angela Atwood, and the men who rushed in behind her were Donald DeFries and Bill Harris. DeFries knocked Steve to the floor and asked him repeatedly, where's the safe? Where's the safe? Because you see, DeFries believed that Steve and Patty must be rich, and he believed also that all rich people kept their money in safes in their house. Uh, I mean, <laughs> if I ever get rich, that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a big safe. <laughs> And just keep my money in there because I don't trust banks. But, you know, the couple wasn't that kind of rich and didn't have a safe full of cash just sitting in their apartment somewhere. Um, uh, instead, Steve told DeFreeze to take his wallet, take anything he wanted. Um, and DeFreeze didn't like that answer and banged Steve in the head again knocking him this time nearly unconscious. Meanwhile, Patty had fled to the kitchen, but she was followed closely by Angela Atwood. Atwood shoved an automatic pistol in Patty's face and told her to be quiet. Bill Harris then dragged Patty towards the front door and put her face down on the floor. Atwood and Harris tried to tie her up, but Patty fought back. Steve woke from his head injury stupor and tried to attack Harris but was slammed back to the ground. After that, Steve ran for the back door and disappeared into the night. Dude! <laughs> yeah, just splits. Like, your fiancé is having, like, the shit kicked out of her. She's, they're trying to tie her up and kidnap her, and you just, I'm just going to go out the back. So... Just disappear. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. While writing this episode, um, I watched this... Um, CNN documentary series called I think it's the radical story of Patty Hearst or something basically it's also executive produced by Jeffrey Tubin who wrote the, um, the book American Heiress and they have lots of interviews with Steve and <laughs> poor Steve uh, seems like a very nebbish little fellow very <laughs> naive and you know, I could see Steve bolting for the back door. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you want to know, like they get a lot of major players to um, talk to them in the documentary series. So if you want to know faces uh, and voices of some of these people we're, we're going to mention today, then I highly recommend you go check that out. Patty was left lying face down on the apartment floor when she realised that this might not be just a robbery. That would be a, a conclusion most people would come to. Yeah. And she was right. Angela Atwood left the apartment first to head to the getaway car, which is being driven by Camilla Hall. Hall backed into the apartment complex's driveway and popped the trunk. Meanwhile, DeFreeze, love that name, <laughs> fired his weapon at some curious students who had heard the commotion. And Bill Harris struggled to carry slash drag Patty down the stairs towards the car. Uh, Patty struggled and when they reached the trunk, she slipped her restraints and made a break for it towards the garage. 
But Harris soon found her and this time managed to get her into the car. And they drove her to their safe house in Daly City, which is a suburb of San Francisco. Yes. Um, while at the safe house, the SLA took great pains to keep her blindfolded, um, which she took to mean that they might actually release her at some point and were trying to make sure that she couldn't identify them in the future. Um, they kept her in a closet that was six feet long by two feet wide and contained a smelly, dirty foam mattress that had been cut down to fit the space. Lovely. Um, I mean, that is... Nope. (laughs) uh, Eventually, they told her she'd been captured by the Symbionese Liberation Army, um, and actually they told her that they were a small combat unit of the larger Symbionese Liberation Army. Because <laughs> of course they did. Uh, is that like when you write on your CV that you were like project coordinator when really you were just an assistant? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's like when I was a kid and I, I worked packing orders for my mother's uh, online business. I named myself VP in charge of order processing. <laughs> um yes uh and they told her she was being held because her father was quote a corporate enemy of the people you know i can see that um over the course of the next week defreeze kept hearst in the closet and repeatedly threatened her with death they let her out for meals and though she remained blindfolded she began to participate in the group's political discussions uh, and they forced Hearst to record several audio tapes that demanded the release of Joe Romero and Russell Little in exchange for her release. Uh, but the this prisoner exchange proved impossible because, duh. Um, Wonder why? <laughs> yeah, right. Cops weren't just like, oh yeah, we'll we'll give you those guys, sure. So after that plan failed. Um, the SLA shifted gears and demanded that Randy Hearst distribute millions of dollars in food to the poor in San Francisco. Uh, that's that's a better. It's a better. I like that as a better hostage negotiation. Yeah, it benefits more people. Yes. Um, now, in response, the Hearst Corporation created a food distribution program called People in Need, and on February twenty second, they began to distribute. Oh they began the distribution of $2 million worth of food. Uh, But by all accounts, the distribution was wildly disorganized and basically had a bunch of people crowding around trucks full of food, uh, trying to push their way in. And so it Mm. didn't go great. Didn't work. Yeah. Um, But uh, Donald DeFries didn't think the people in need effort was good enough. Um, and that's when the SLA's demands and negotiations basically stopped. Uh, the food continued to be distributed for a month while the SLA held Patty. During this time, Hearst was given SLA political material to read and memorise. Then DeFries supposedly told her she could either join the group and further their agenda, or she could die. Oh. What what are you going to choose? Yeah. (laughs) And 
Other reports, including from Bill Harris, suggest that Hearst was already beginning to think like her captors. Harris also says that Hearst had started to fall in love with Willie Wolfe and was excited by the idea of life as a political radical. I mean, I get that. They're all middle-class kids who were bored with life, yeah. so... Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's let's be radicals and cause loads of mayhem, you know, upset loads of other people, destroy people's lives, because we're not actually going to face the consequences of it, because mummy and daddy will fix it. Well, and also, like, except for Donald DeFries she's she fits in pretty well with this group they're all a little bit older than her Mm -hmm. but basically they're all berkeley students um as was she at the time and so like it's not crazy to think that she would have just started kind of getting into the group of the whole thing in either case hearst decided to stay with the group and her blindfold was finally removed the group then started training her including with weapons and insisted she join in the group's Quote unquote, sexual freedom. They fucking hate this already. Yeah. According to her accounts, she was raped by both Wolf and DeFries, though Bill Harris refutes these claims. But here at Square Mile of Murder, we tend to believe women when they say they've been raped or sexually assaulted. So, gonna have to say, fuck you on this one. Yeah. Bye bye, Harris. Yeah. Get the fuck. Bill Harris uh, is kind of a piece of work. He's heavily featured in that documentary series. And, like, it's fascinating to hear him talk. Also, he sounds a lot like my Uncle Barry. Um, (laughs) He's got kind of like a California... your family is from California, aren't they? (laughs) Mostly Southern (laughs) California. That side of the family, anyway. Actually, like, where this takes place, um, my dad's side of the family uh, is from sacramento and san francisco and so like i have a lot of family members who were all around this area at the time that this was happening (laughs) um but yeah harris uh is quite something and we'll we'll see more of what he of his version of events (laughs) as we go on here i hate him already (laughs) um So on April 3rd, 1974, two months after she'd been abducted, the SLA released a communique to the media. It was an audio recording of Patty Hearst announcing that she had joined the SLA and taken the name Tanya. Um, In the communique, she said, quote, I would like to begin this statement by informing the public that I wrote what I am about to say. It's what I feel. I have never been forced to say anything on any tape. I have been given the choice of one, being released in a safe area, or two, joining the forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army and fighting for my freedom and the freedom of all oppressed peoples. I have chosen to stay and fight. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Just, when when you start a sentence with... Uh, you know, I wish to inform the public that I wrote what I'm about to say. I have not been forced to say anything. I have been given a choice. No, I don't believe that. Well, so in her her later accounts, she said that um, I believe it was Angela Atwood wrote this uh, as well as with some contributions from Harris and DeFreeze. So, you know. It's one of those things that I don't think we're ever really going to know the answer to. No. So. (laughs) 
On April 15th, Hearst was recorded on surveillance video wielding a semi-automatic carbine rifle during a bank robbery at Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. Uh-oh. Not good. <laughs> Hearst barked orders at bank workers and customers and provided cover for other SLA members robbing the bank. They managed to expropriate, in their words, around $10,000. Two people were shot during the robbery. Yeah, not good going, really. No. Uh, following the robbery, Hearst's involvement was quickly spread through the media, and many outlets proposed that she hadn't willingly taken part. But U.S. Attorney General William B. Saxby accused her of being a, quote, common criminal and not a reluctant participant. Well, we will find out. <laughs> On April 24th, Hearst and the rest of the SLA members released another tape where she confirmed she had been a willing participant in the robbery. Nuts to you, Saxby! <laughs> <laughs> well... He was right. It clears that up. <laughs> yep. Yep. She's a common criminal robbing banks. She did it of her own accord. <laughs> Guess what? I did it of my own accord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Up until this point, the FBI was only looking to talk to Hearst as a material witness to the SLA's crime. But after the tape, they issued a warrant for her arrest. <clears throat> now... After the bank robbery, a month went by, um, and in that time, the SLA hightailed it out of the Bay Area and drove down to Los Angeles. Um, they hid out in a house in Compton, and on May 16th, Hearst and Bill and Emily Harris were sent by the group to buy supplies at uh, Mel's Sporting Goods in Inglewood. Um which is a nearby neighborhood to Compton in um, downtown South Central LA. Uh, Mel Sporting Goods, is that like an outdoor center type place? Yeah, I, th I think it's just a like sp sporting equipment supply store. So they probably had guns and sleeping bags and camping okay. supplies and stuff like that. Um, okay. So... Uh, on the way to the store, they took a VW bus um, that had recently gotten a parking ticket uh, in the Compton neighborhood where they were hiding out. Um, and according to Bill Harris, the three of them took the parking ticket with them uh, in order to pay it off during the course of this trip to the sporting goods store. Well, I mean, that's reasonable. They've just stolen... <laughs> 10 grand from a bank. They've got the money to pay a parking yeah, ticket. Yeah, they can pay their $20 parking ticket. Um, probably wasn't even that much. It's probably like three bucks. <laughs> um, so the Harrises went inside Mel's while Patty waited outside in the car. And she was armed with an automatic weapon with full access to the car keys. Uh, so... Bill and Emily went inside to purchase supplies when Bill sh saw a shotgun bandolier that he wanted to buy for his wife, Emily, who um, often used a shotgun as her weapon of choice. Now, oh, isn't that sweet. so sweet? Now, um, what's a bandolier? It's like the thing 
that go like a strap that goes across your chest that holds like extra bullets or extra rounds oh yeah i know what yeah you mean. i think like rambo or yeah. yeah um so uh according to his account he got nervous about buying it because he thought it would look suspicious for someone to be buying a combat style bandolier because yeah um <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, if they're selling it, then you can buy well, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's kind of my thoughts on it. Uh, but he was nervous, so he put it down and walked out of the store. But the clerk hadn't seen him put it down and thought he was shoplifting. So the clerk confronted Harris and slapped handcuffs on one of his wrists. And then things got crazy. Bill and Emily struggled with the clerk and another man working in a shop. Essentially wrestling, just out there on the sidewalk. Casual. Uh, from the van, Hurst saw the struggle and made a split-second decision. She started shooting. As we all would do. Great. Yeah. She emptied two 30-round clips into the storefront, and the gunfire was enough to let Bill and Emily Harris get away and run back to the van. They skedaddle out of there with their big, slow VW bus. Ain't going fast enough. No. Even in them days, they were slow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they decide to switch cars. They end up at a driveway with two black men outside, standing next to a car. Bill told the, told the two men, Hey guys, really sorry, but we need to take your car. We're with the SLA and the cops are chasing us. Okay. Yeah. His theory was that telling people they were SLA would gain them some points and convince people to help them after they had set up the People in Need food program. It's a, it's a very bold choice. <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, and so how widely known was it that they were like that oh, they were responsible cuz this is this is down in Compton, that's near. Is that near LA? It's a, yeah, it's in LA. Basically all all of this stuff, everything that's happened in this case from kidnapping onward was covered extensively by national and worldwide media. So like, okay. and I was talking to my mom about it the other day and she was like, basically Patty Hearst was on the nightly news every day. Right. S especially right after she'd been taken. So, and the Hearsts were constantly addressing the media and talking about the food program and all that stuff. So, right. So it is a reasonable it's a reasonable thought that oh, everyone will know that we yeah. forced them to set up their, their people in need for food programs, so they're going to give us their car. Yeah. Okay. And in this case, in the poor majority black neighborhood of Inglewood, it worked. But they left one really important thing in the van. The parking ticket. Which was issued to the neighborhood of the SLA's safe house in Compton. Not great. Yeah. Not the smartest. No. 
The police found the parking ticket and had traced the rest of the gang to their hiding spot. The LAPD deployed their newly formed SWAT team, which was the first SWAT team in the country, and surrounded the house. And then the media surrounded the LAPD. Of course. (laughs) And what ensued was another moment for the history books in this already crazy case. The LAPD made their presence known and demanded the SLA surrender. They made their announcement 23 times, but the group refused. The police then deployed tear gas canisters in an attempt to get the SLA to surrender. But all that did was prompt the group to start shooting from inside their house. Oops. I mean, <laughs> you empty, what, two 30-round clips into a storefront because your pals are in a fight with a, with a shop clerk, then uh, tear gas wasn't going to persuade anyone to do anything, was it? No, not so much. The SLA made absolutely no attempt to surrender and the police returned fire. Retired LAPD SWAT detective Al Preciado said that the LAPD weren't returning fire because they wanted to kill people in the house. They were shooting to get the SLA to stop shooting. The LAPD returned fire to try and stop all other members of the neighbourhood from getting injured. But the SLA kept shooting. And the house caught on fire. Yeah. I mean, what else? That's just what this story was missing. A house fire. <laughs> a house fire. Um, so the house is now on fire. The SLA is shooting at the cops. The cops are trying to figure out what to do and are shooting back to try to get them to stop. And just across the street is a small team from LA's CBS Channel 2 News. And they had brought along a new piece of technology called a minicam, which shot videotape instead of film and was much more portable than traditional news cameras. And this minicam, uh huh, this minicam captured the whole shootout as it happened, and their feed was broadcast throughout the country and the world live, something that hadn't ever really been done before. And everybody is watching this live shootout, house fire, crazy bullshit. And they're all thinking American heiress Patty Hearst is inside. (laughs) So they're thinking they're going to see Patty Hearst murdered on live television. Damn. Yeah. But (laughs) you know who else was watching? Patty Hearst. And Bill and Emily Harris from their Anaheim motel room. And they watched as the house holding their, quote, comrades, as the SLA referred to each other, um, started to burn to the ground. They watched as their comrades kept shooting and watched the LAPD firing back. The SWAT team once again told the SLA to surrender and told the group they wouldn't be harmed if they came outside. But nobody came outside. Um, The shootout ended up lasting 62 minutes which is still the longest shootout in LAPD history. And now for some numbers to put this whole thing into perspective. The LAPD fired over 5,300 rounds, and the SLA fired somewhere between three and 4,000 rounds. 83 tear gas canisters were deployed, and 23 nearby homes were damaged. After it was all over, 
18 weapons were recovered from the house, as well as two unexploded pipe bombs. And in the house, there were six bodies. Nancy Ling Perry, Camilla Hall, Patricia Ms. Moon, Soltizik. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yay! Yeah. Uh, Willie Wolf, Angela Atwood, and the SLA leader, Donald DeFries. Everyone died of a combination of gunshot wounds and smoke inhalation, except for Donald DeFries, who died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. But thankfully, no innocent bystanders standers, or police were injured during the shootout. Which is kind of amazing when you think about how many bullets that were flying around. That is incredible. Yeah. And like... So, five, like 5,300 rounds from the LAPD and between three and 4,000 from the SLA. Yeah. That's over 8,000 rounds yeah. were shot. And nobody... And nobody else, else was injured. Yeah. Like, it's wild. And like... Um, it's amazing that no one else was killed, but that nobody was injured. injured. I know. Well, and like it's, um, the the guys filming with the little mini cam, not so little, by the way. The thing is like the size of a whole human being. But <laughs> yeah, but we're used to like GoPros and things like yeah. that, aren't we? So <laughs> compared to what they were using, um, basically, the small group of reporters had several instances where they had bullets whiz by their heads while they're filming and like the one guy he talks about in the documentary he's like i could feel the breeze from the bullet right above my ear it's like that's fucking terrifying that is not where you want to feel the breeze from a bullet no (laughs) just putting that out there yeah uh, Hearst and the Harrises knew they had to leave Southern California after the shootout and they fled back to the Bay Area. There they met up with other student radicals that were sympathetic to the cause. Kathleen Soliu, Solia, Solia, who had been Angela Atwood's best friend and was devastated by her death, agreed to help the three fugitives escape to rural Pennsylvania with the help of sports writer and political activist Jack Scott. In June 1974, Jack Scott agreed to harbour the fugitives in exchange for interviews, because he wanted to write a book about the SLA. For a time, they were joined at the farmhouse by Wendy Yoshimura, who was already a a wanted fugitive for her involvement in the Revolutionary Army Radical Group, who operated a massive bomb factory out of a Berkeley garage. Of course. Yoshimura had been charged as an accomplice to a bombing and had gone on the run in the East Coast. Yeah, so she hung out with them for a little while at this farmhouse. Um, uh, In September of 1974, Patty, Bill, and Emily Harris made their way back across the country to Northern California because Jack Scott got real fed up with them living at his house and told him to <laughs> get gone, basically. Um, really? You want to tell a bunch of people who have no qualms shooting and bombing to, you know, just get the fuck out? Apparently, guy was gutsy. <laughs> um, uh, and this time, the group settled in the state capital of Sacramento, which is where my dad grew up um 
they th- while they were there, they spent more time with Kathleen Celia, Wendy Yoshimura, um, Kathleen's siblings Steve and Josephine Celia, James Kilgore, who was Kathleen's boyfriend, and uh, Michael Borden. Um, and Patty Hearst and Steve Celia started a relationship and ended up living together for a while in Sacramento. And eventually, uh, Wendy Yoshimura also moved in with Hearst. All this time, Randy and Catherine Hurst are wanting their daughter to return home, as normal parents do. Yeah. And around Christmas in 1974, Catherine broadcasts a live television address begging Patty to come home and spend the holidays with her family. If Patty ever saw the message, it fell on deaf ears, because Patty Hurst remained in hiding for another nine months. The FBI were also desperately searching for the SLA fugitives. But they caught a big break when Jack Scott's brother told the FBI he knew the SLA had been in his brother's farmhouse. Dude. <laughs> do you really grass on your brother? Actually, oh, yeah. yeah. I think in this case it, it warrants it. <laughs> <laughs> While following up the lead, the FBI found... Wendy Yoshimura's fingerprint on a piece of paper that had been crumpled up and shoved in a hole in a mattress. Which is like... As you do. Pretty, like, that's the only piece of evidence they found in that entire farmhouse. (laughs) According to Bill Harris, so who knows about the veracity of this, but the whole reason the paper ended up in the mattress is because one night... um, Wendy saw a spider in her bed and she like tore the whole thing apart and couldn't find it. And so she flipped over the mattress and found a hole in the bottom and decided that must have been where it was coming from. So she shoved a piece of paper up in there to try to, I don't know, trap it in the mattress. But then you still got a spider in your (laughs) mattress. So like that didn't make sense to me. But he said that they had wiped down all the rest of the farmhouse and made sure to clean everything and get rid of evidence that they were there. But they missed (laughs) that. Well, because they missed that and, you know, Wendy was hiding spiders in her mattress, (laughs) the FBI were finally gaining some ground on the remaining SLA members. So it's now the spring of 1975 and the SLA were running low on money again uh, because the only money they had coming in was from Mike Borden's house painting business which probably isn't going to support all six or seven or eight of them, however the hell many Celia's and, and all all. Yeah, them. plus nobody can really go out and help him because they're all wanted. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> um, so, you know, what do you do when you don't have money? They decided they needed to expropriate more funds, a.k.a. they needed to rob another bank. so this time they chose the crocker national bank in carmichael california was it which is an area in sacramento county um and they picked crocker national bank specifically because it didn't have a surveillance system it was quite an old style bank small small branch so that is more thought out than going you know into one with a surveillance system where your face can be recognized. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the thing that, that gets me about that first, the Hibernia bank robbery, is that, like, 
not only did the bank, you know, it's not just like the bank had an alarm. The bank had fucking video surveillance in <laughs> the mid-1970s. Like, you know you're fucked when. Although, yeah, they weren't. In the 70s, so. there would have been plenty that didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so on April 21st, 1975, Emily Harris, Kathleen Celia, Mike Borden, and Jim Kilgore went into the bank while Steve Celia and Bill Harris waited in one getaway car and Patty Hearst and Wendy Yoshimura waited in another. And Patty Hearst was behind the wheel. Inside the bank, there was chaos as the SLA demanded everyone inside follow their orders. One customer, um, a 42-year-old mother of four, Myrna Offsel, was in the bank to deposit the weekend donations for her church. And she was carrying a big heavy um, adding machine and went to put it on the ground. Emily Harris saw this and faced Offsel. Now, according to SLA accounts, um, Harris had taken the safety off of her shotgun and in the process of threatening Offsel, the gun accidentally discharged. Other reports say... Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was the gun. Yeah. Now, other reports say Harris shot in an attempt to intimidate the bank patrons. Either way, Myrna Offsel was shot at close range with Harris's 12-gauge shotgun. The gang members brutally beat the people in the bank, yelled obscenities, and vaulted over the counter to get the cash. When the SLA left the bank, the other patrons and bank workers tried to stop Offsel's bleeding, but they couldn't do much to help. Oswald was rushed to a nearby hospital where her husband was a surgeon. Dr. Oswald was one of the doctors who tried to resuscitate his wife, but Myrna Oswald died shortly after arriving at the hospital. The SLA were now officially murderers because in the US, according to the felony murder rule, anyone who is involved with the commission of a murder is also responsible for that murder, including Patty Hurst, who was driving the getaway car. After the robbery, the group moved back to San Francisco and there they attempted to carry out a series of bombings. On August 7th, 1975, Patty Hearst placed a pipe bomb under a police car at the Taraville police station, but the bomb was a dud and didn't go off. On August 20th, the same year, two bombs were placed in at the Marin County Courthouse one was placed under a police car outside, caused panic, and the second was placed in the doorway in the hopes to kill anybody nearby. The bombs went off, but in the wrong order, and nobody was harmed, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, now, just a couple days later, on August 22nd, the SLA took their bombs down to Los Angeles and placed bombs under two different LAPD squad cars. Uh, the bomb placed under one squad car was rigged to explode uh, when the car drove away, but the uh, detonation mechanism failed and the bomb didn't go off. And I think we're quite lucky that they were very bad at bombs. Yes. And apparently, so basically the mechanism was like a clothespin with screws screwed through it and then wires wrapped around them and so in with a wooden shim in between the um mm. the pegs and so 
the shim was supposed to pull out when the car drove away. Um, right. And then the clothespin would snap closed, the screws would hit each other, and that would close the circuit and set off the bomb. Which, Kay. according to the like FBI guys on the documentary, they said it was like the most advanced pipe bomb detonation scheme they had ever seen at that point. Which is like... <sighs> That's kind of like your ambition outweighing your talent, though. Like, exactly. oh, it's really advanced, but it didn't work. Well, exactly. And so, like, I guess the car pulled out at an angle, which then made the mm. clothespin kind of like, you know how clothespins kind of close, um, uh, mm-hmm. like, offset sometimes, the spring stretches? Yeah. It did that. Mm. And so they didn't hit together properly, and it didn't blow up, which is, like, really lucky. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, uh, when, uh, police officers discovered the bomb, they warned other officers on duty to check under their cars and a second bomb was found. Now, these two pipe bombs were massive and each were made out of three inch diameter pipe and filled with nails as shrapnel. Oh, yeah. Um, from the construction of the bombs, one thing was very clear. The SLA were actively trying to kill LA police officers, likely as retaliation for the shootout the year before. Um, yeah, but they started that. Yeah, well, they didn't see it that way, apparently. Evidently. (laughs) Um, now, Bill Harris, our old buddy, has denied being involved with any bombings um he just he had nothing to say about that but evidence suggests that the harrises and patty hearst were all involved with building and planting these bombs meanwhile the fbi was tracking the sla through associates of the solia siblings they tracked the group to a single street in san francisco and needed to narrow it down special agent frank doyle now retired had a theory he knew that if the group was on the block in a safe house, they would need things like water, gas, and electricity. He and Special Agent Jason Moulton worked with local utility companies and found someone was stealing power at 625 Moss Street in Daly City. Their investigation also turned up a lead at 292 Presidia Avenue in San Francisco. They spent the night outside 292 Presidia in an RV doing surveillance. On the morning of September 17th, 1975, the FBI agents saw the Solia siblings leave 292 Presidia Avenue. What, what they weren't expecting to see just minutes later was Bill and Emily Harris leaving the same address. Dun, dun, dun. The, it's just the, the suspense is building. I can't take it anymore. <gasps> ah. Bill Harris had left the house to bring laundry to the laundromat around the corner. While inside, he saw a man in a suit enter, which stood out to him because it's a working class neighborhood. Man in a suit in the laundromat. Yeah. Sounds like it was standout anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to be washing your suits in the laundromat. 
Bill went home and told Emily he thought he'd been spotted and the two prepared to leave the next morning. On September 18th, 1975, Bill and Emily Harris were arrested. The FBI entered the house and found a lot of things they didn't expect to be there. Shotguns, rifles and bombs. But they didn't find what they were looking for. Patty Hurst. Wasn't there. Um, now, following uh, Harris's arrest, Moulton and Special Agent Tom Patton drove to uh, 625 Morse Street. Um, and when they arrived, the garage door was open and a plumber was working inside. Uh, they showed him photos of Patty and Wendy and asked if he knew the woman. Um, and the man responded, I don't know if it's them, but there's two women upstairs right now. <laughs> so yeah, Plumber's like, I don't know, but there's ladies upstairs. Um, so uh, Special Agent Patton went around to the back of the house and found that the back door was open. He approached the door and could see Patty Hurst and Wendy Yoshimura sitting at the kitchen table, just chatting. So Patton went into the room and yelled, FBI! Um, probably more authoritatively than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wendy immediately surrendered. Patty Hurst, on the other hand, ran from the kitchen towards the back of the house, where she kept her weapon. Uh Thinking quickly, Patton yelled that if Patty didn't return, he would harm Yoshimura. And um, Hearst returned to the room. And 591 days after her kidnapping, Patricia Hearst was arrested and taken into custody. Upon arriving in custody, Hearst was processed like any other arrestee. When asked for her occupation, she said, Urban Gorilla. Of course. I don't think you can put that on a farm. <laughs> well, they did. <laughs> she made radical solidarity. <laughs> and gestures to the assembled media cameras and basically held the SLA party line. But all that soon began to change once her parents hired high-powered lawyer F. Lee Bailey. Bailey had defended the Boston Strangler and would go on to work on the O.J. Simpson defense team. He was the best that money could buy. He and his associate, Albert Johnson, realized the only way they could possibly win the case was to present the idea that Patty Hearst had been brainwashed and coerced into everything she had done with the SLA. Patty Hearst was charged with armed robbery for the Hibernia bank heist. Her trial began on February 4th, 1976, two years to the day after she was kidnapped. Her defence presented multiple experts on brainwashing and prisoner of war survivor syndrome, also now known as Stockholm syndrome. Uh, Bailey's defence proposed that Hurst was never a free agent or voluntary member of the SLA right up to the day of her arrest. Uh, Bailey also had to stick with the brainwashing defence because he didn't want to open up Hurst to prosecution for her other crimes, including the Mel's sporting goods shooting, the attempted bombings, and most importantly, felony murder for Myrna Offsal death at Crocker National Bank. Which, I mean, when you think about it, is pretty smart. Like, 
you know, kind of oh, yeah. to have to stick with this idea of like, well, she wasn't responsible for any of it. Um, but unfortunately, uh, this defense strategy kind of strained credulity quite a bit. And um, jurors would have had to disregard all of the SLA communiques where Hearst insisted she was not under SLA control. They would have had to ignore the many chances Hearst had to escape her captors, um, the bomb-making books found on her bookshelves, and also, you know, the little, the little hiccup of uh, that thing where she tried to run for weapons when they finally found her and tried to, like, shoot an FBI guy. Yeah, that's... That's pretty harmful to a defense. Yeah. You know, oh, I was bra- but also she could be like, oh, I was brainwashed to shoot the FBI. Yeah. Shoot on sight. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately the jury didn't buy it. Um, even after hearing her herself testify that she had been tortured and controlled. Um, the jury came back after 12 hours of deliberation And on March 20th, they found her guilty of armed robbery and use of a firearm to commit a felony. And she was sentenced to seven years in prison. Bill and Emily Harris both pled guilty to bank robbery and kidnapping charges and served eight years in prison. Hearst appealed her conviction all the way up to the Supreme Court, but they refused to hear her case. Ultimately, Patty Hearst's sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter on February 1st, 1979, she had served 22 months in prison. Not quite seven years. No. Yeah. But, you know, that's not that's not badly for, you know, two years of mayhem in California. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, like, ultimately, Carter commuted her sentence after a long media push by the Hearst family. And well, they are the media, so I could see how that would work. (laughs) And also, apparently, um, Jonestown had just happened and people were starting to reconsider the idea that, um, you know, people could be sort of mind controlled into doing horrific things, including if you think about Jonestown, like mass suicide oh yeah definitely um so that had also a big helping hand in uh, convincing carter to let her out of jail yeah but it's also not a defense for everything no definitely not problem with things like that (laughs) yes on february 26 1976 a grand jury indicted kathleen solia on explosives and conspiracy charges for planting pipe bombs under the lapd squad cars Celia went on the run to Minnesota, changed her name to Sarah Jane Olson. She married a doctor and had three daughters and managed to evade detection for 23 years. It's sort of amazing. Apparently, she just lived a really normal, boring, suburban life for two decades. (laughs) How how can you go from being like uh, an urban gorilla, as they say? (laughs) To being a suburban mom for like, like soccer 20 mom, years. Literally. Like, oh. I don't know. It's amazing. I just, I love that part of the story. Celia <laughs> mm. uh, was captured in October 1999 after her case was featured on America's Most Wanted. She pled guilty to the explosive 
and conspiracy charges. Patty Hearst struck a deal with prosecutors to testify against her former SLA comrades, who are now facing first-degree murder charges for the killing of Myrna Offsal. Uh, She was granted immunity as a state's witness, but never had to testify. Oh. Lucky for her. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So on November 8th, 2002, Kathleen Celia, Bill, and Emily Harris, um, by now they had divorced, and uh, Emily was uh, called Emily Montague, um, and Mike Borden pled guilty to Offsell's murder at a reduced second-degree murder charge. And their deal with prosecutors stipulated that none of them would serve more than six to eight years in prison. Um, and all of them had already served time in prison for um, their previous crimes. Uh, now, Jim Kilgore also faced explosives and passport fraud charges and had been on the run since 1975. And he was ultimately found and arrested in South Africa. And he pled guilty to all charges in 2003. That's. 28 years on the run. That must be exhausting. Yeah. Like, unless, unless, like, because he's in South Africa, maybe at some point you kind of think you've got away with it. And Well, I think that's kind of what right. happened, you know, potentially in, in both their cases where you yeah. just kind of relax enough and then it all goes to hell. <laughs> um. Uh, so all, uh, of the former SLA members have served their prison terms and have since been released. The only SLA member still incarcerated today is Joe Ramiro, who is still serving a life sentence for Marcus Foster's murder, which if you remember, he didn't commit. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've gotten that. So (laughs) that's kind of a bummer. He was, he was one of the the bargaining chips yes. so to speak when patty hurst was first kidnapped wasn't he yeah so after all that he's the only one of them who's still in prison <laughs> yeah so um following her commutation hurst went back to her cushy life in hillsborough which is a fancy place in northern california um mm-hmm. she ended up marrying bernard shaw who was a police officer who was assigned to her security detail while she was out on bail. And they had two children, um, and they were married up until his death in 2013. Uh, Hearst published a memoir, Every Secret Thing, in 1981, um, about her time with the SLA. Why do, uh, why do I get the feeling it wasn't every <laughs> secret thing? Probably wasn't. What kind of... Selective secret things. Some secret things. (laughs) Um, Now, what she wrote in the book about her time with the SLA prompted authorities to consider bringing new charges against her. Because she was that dumb to admit to a bunch of shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But again, Mm. lucky for her, nothing ever came of it. Uh, Patty Hearst has appeared in several John Waters films as campy characters, and she now raises shore dogs. Yep. Wow. Yep. On January 20th, 2001, uh, which was President Bill Clinton's final full day in office, 
Patty Hearst was granted a full pardon for the crimes she had previously been convicted of. And that is the wild, complicated, crazy story of Patty Hearst. Her kidnapping and the rise and fall of the Symbionese Liberation Army. What do you think of this one? (laughs) I'm still processing. Right? It's a lot to take in. Like, (laughs) the thing that I find so fascinating about this case is that there really is so much more to it than people generally Mm. think of or, like, remember about it. And... Yeah, I mean, I the only knowledge I had previous to this of Patty Hearst was she was some rich American socialite who was kidnapped and held for ransom. Yeah, exactly. That was pretty much all I knew. Yeah, and like most people, I, they'll know about the kidnapping and they'll know about the bank robbery. Um, yeah. Especially because, like, the bank robbery... Uh, surveillance images are some of the really famous Mm. images tied to the case. Um, Yeah. And actually, during the process of researching this, the entire FBI file on the Hearst case has been released to the public. So, and like the FBI has a bunch of videos and photos. And so uh, we're going to post a link to that um, uh, on our website. So go check all that stuff out because it's kind of fascinating. Um, But like, yeah, I don't know. It's just there's so many people involved. But also Mm. it was just a group of like six idiots and an an escaped prisoner Mm. who had this sway over them. Just Mm. like things went horribly wrong. Yeah, I I really don't know what to think of it because, like I say, originally it was a bunch of bored middle-class kids. Yeah. And so, what? See, people like that, they have this idea of, like, everybody being equal and everything, but they're never going to give up that trust fund and that security net of mummy and daddy fixing all their problems. Yeah. So I find it difficult to take them seriously because they will always piss off back to suburbia with that safety net. Yeah. I mean, just look at Kathleen Celia, um, who was went to be a soccer mom. Yeah. Like, it's a prime example. Yeah. And, like, she um, had the ability to just move to Minnesota and live in the suburbs because she was, you know, yeah. a, a, a redheaded white lady. Mm. so I don't know what I think I think she's done Patty Hearst has done an amazing PR job though oh yeah getting everyone to forget about I mean it does help when when granddad owns the American media yeah like um, and can bully the president into commuting your sentence yeah I mean it's the Hearst family's sort of concentrated media efforts to clear her name are really something quite impressive that like I think now people don't necessarily think about um 
but yeah it's wild also one of the favorite things that i love seeing when researching this case is um all of the like you know the uh question and answer sites online like quora or like yahoo answers um yeah there's a bunch of pages <laughs> with the questions who were the symbionese people and have they been liberated yet <laughs> And who, whoever, poor schmuck who has to answer that, it's like, well, it's not a thing. And they didn't need to yeah. be liberated. <laughs> uh, but just like li listening to the, like, go listen to the SLA communique tapes. Go read up about all the, like, fucking um, code names that all the members took. Like, it's a fucking rabbit hole of insanity and it, it's fascinating it's like seriously yeah. entertaining <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's i'm gonna have to go do like loads of research yeah. on this now just fall down some rabbit holes highly recommend <laughs> um, um yeah so patty hurst happy birthday mom <laughs> Happy birthday, Jaya. <laughs> um, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Like we'll, uh, like I said earlier, we'll post some of the famous photos and um, videos from this case on social media and on our website. So come hang out with us there and check those out. Uh, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.